this this is great. What a time to be alive. Charlie, what's your reaction to seeing this? I feel like I'm here at a historical moment in time. Taylor, how did you figure out a guy had a python in his pants? Python. Bloody bloody blah 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 bloody bloody blah blah blah. Cooler. Yeah, baby. The Como Water Cooler with Charlie Harger and Taylor Van Size. Welcome to the Como Podcast. I'm Charlie. And I'm Taylor. So, Taylor, a lot of headlines happening this week. I guess the big thing is the election the, about two uh, and a half weeks. That, the, that's the one with the uh, the POTUS, right? Right. No, I, I was thinking the state treasurer race. It's a real barn burner. It is, yeah. Well, you know, you have on the one side that one person, mm-hmm. and on the other, uh, the, the, uh, the other guy. You, you know, it's something you could actually bring up. I actually predict in that race, mm-hmm. the Republican will win. You know really? why? You why? Know why? Why is that? Both are Republicans who are running. Well, that's a bold prediction. Listen, I go out on the ledge here. On yeah, the but when we are under podcast. these four call letters, Charlie, we can't speculate. Absolutely not. Listen, a lot of stuff is happening with the election, and as you've probably heard, there are people who are saying this is rigged, it mm. could be fraudulent. Uh, we've got a University of Washington professor, though. He's saying that might not be cool. Not cool? Not cool. His name's Professor George Lovell. Calls it a disservice to the public. Oh, oh, okay. Rigging the election isn't cool either, right. though. Well, no. I, the claims I, aren't cool, nor is rigging. I would have to say rigging the election is also definitely... Not cool. Not cool. All right, I, I'm, I got you. By no means am I endorsing that. I think if you wanted to make a list of 10 ways to, fit, to fix an election, if you were ruthless and wanted to do that, in-person voter fraud would not make the top 10 list. It's just not, a, it's not the most plausible way of fixing an election. But it's inflammatory, and it justified these laws that they passed for voter IDs and things because that gave them partisan advantage. So I think that created an atmosphere in which people had distrust of election results, and Trump is amplifying that in this election. Listen, we actually, of course, have the two main candidates for president. We have Hillary Mm -hmm. Clinton, Donald Trump. Uh, You have some of the third-party candidates. There are the Steins, the Johnsons. The Steins, the Johnsons. But if you were to look back, uh, you know, there's Ross Perot, but Mm -hmm. perhaps the most consequential third-party candidate, Ralph Nader, back in 2000. I remember him. He did the Crumple Zone thing. He did the Corvair, the, Unsafe the, at Any Seatbelts. Seat uh, very famous guy, did a, a nice lot hairdo. of consumer advocacy. Basically, our, the national version of Herb Weisbaum. Right. Uh, however, uh, Herb, I, I think Herb will accept it if I were to say this. <laughs> Herb has never been consequential in a national election. You can't prove that. I, I I can't disprove that either. Okay. There's Ralph Nader. Mm-hmm. The Pogemaster spoke to him. The Pogemaster General? Jeff Pogela. Here's his interview with Ralph Nader. All right. Ralph Nader, who has run on a number of different tickets uh, over the years and has been a tireless consumer advocate for decades, he joins me now on the Como Newsline in advance of his appearance later tonight at Town Hall Seattle. He has a new book out as well. And first off, uh, Mr. Nader, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, Jeff. Well, so tell me a, a little bit about your book that you have that is uh, just coming out. Uh, it is called Breaking Through Power. It is easier than we think. What's the uh, premise of the book? Yeah, it's basically saying to people that uh, there's a majority opinion around a lot of important changes that are needed in this country, which I outline in the book, including a, a higher minimum wage, a full Medicare with all free choice of doctor and hospital, and cracking down on corporate abuses, uh, and many others. 
And the problem is that there's very little organization of citizens in each congressional district because a lot of these changes have to go through 535 men and women in Congress. And so breaking through power shows that in American history and at the present time, anytime 1% or less of the people organize in each congressional district and laser focus on the Congress on a change that uh, a majority of the people support, Nothing can stop the people from getting these measures through Congress. So is Jill Stein your gal this time around? Well, uh, I think that's a a very good opportunity for people, because the more uh, progressive third parties, and a lot of their positions are supported by a majority of the American people, Green Party positions, go lift their website. And the more they get, uh, the more uh, the two parties will behave better, because they don't want to lose out in the next election. Charlie, uh, you are not a young person anymore. I, I beg to differ. I, you, you are officially not in the up-and-coming generation. You're, you're an Xer. I'm on my way to certain... Retirement? Yeah. Yeah. 41? That, that's not That's old, not bad, but you're not a millennial anymore. Right. That, that's what's capturing the, the, you know, the news cycles these days. What are the millennials going to do when they vote? And one thing I do know, they love the election. Yeah. Oh, I know what they're going to do. super stoked. They're not going to vote. They're... There are decades and decades worth of election data that shows millennials or people that age group, they just don't vote. They don't go out. So I did this story this week about Uh SMOD, the sweet meteor of death. Oh, that's what it stands for. Many of them say SMOD is preferable to Clinton or Trump becoming president. They both suck. Well, there's Hillary. She's just the whole email fiasco. Yeah. And she lied about it. And Donald's just so many, so many different reasons. This comes from a University of Massachusetts Lowell Odyssey Millennials poll. Now, there are questions about whether a giant meteor was born in the United States, and therefore it may be ineligible to assume the presidency. So with SMOD out of the picture, the breakdown has 18 to 35-year-olds preferring Hillary Clinton with 61% of the vote, Donald Trump with 22%, Gary Johnson with 9%, Jill Stein with 5 and a handful undecided. Now, the question they ask, the one involving SMOD goes as follows. Over a Clinton or Trump presidency, 39% of those surveyed said they preferred Obama serve a life term. 26% prefer a random lottery to choose the next president, and 23% prefer that giant meteor strike. In other words, SMOD is strong with the nihilists, but is still far behind other unconstitutional options. Say, Taylor. Say, Charlie. You ever get stuck on the Mercer mess? Uh, Actually, yeah. Every single day I come home from work. At least we spent those years and years of construction oh, and yeah. uh, millions upon millions of dollars fixing it. The really nice thing is that instead of having, you know, two lanes of, of mm-hmm. solid traffic both ways, it's now three or sometimes four lanes right. of solid traffic right. not going anywhere both ways. Cost $74 million. Uh-huh. Puget Sound Business Journal just did this thing, this study. They used the TomTom GPS data. Okay. And over the past couple of years, traffic times have improved by, I, I want, don't look at the script. Okay. Avert your eyes. Has it improved I'm looking by... looking at Jeff Podula beyond you. Has it improved by five minutes, ten minutes, or two seconds? Oh, you know, my, my initial guess would be none of those. It's gotten worse by several seconds, if, if nothing else. Oh, no, else. it's improved. Five minutes, I guess. Two seconds. Two seconds? $74 million, uh-huh. two seconds. That's, I mean, that's not a great payoff, is it? 
I, I, I'm no mathematician, but I'm thinking that but, but right at the now same City time, Hall is going to push back against that. <laughs> at the same time, though, you got to realize, you know, there are a lot of extra businesses along that corridor now, sending more workers onto the thing. Yes. We're trying not to say, Amazon, it's your fault, but... Smart people never take Mercer. No. I take Mercer every day. That's what I'm saying. Pete Combs. You know Pete Combs, Yeah, right? yeah. He's, a, he's the guy that works here. He did a story here about eliminating traffic jumps. Jamba Juice. Uh, yeah, is that our new sponsor? <laughs> brought to you traffic. Brought to you by Jamba Juice. <laughs> That's exactly what they want to be associated with. Eliminating traffic jams. Here's Pete. If you're a commuter in Seattle, this is bound to be where a lot of your frustration lives. On the road, highways are overcrowded, speeds are reduced to a crawl. And heaven help us if there's a wreck somewhere up ahead. Damn, this traffic jam. Time to get home, my sub will be cold. Damn, this traffic jam. But Bill Beatty says he has the answer. He's not a rock star traffic engineer. In fact, he's not a traffic engineer at all. He calls himself an amateur physicist. But his theory on how to ease stop-and-go traffic on our highways earned him a story in the Wall Street Journal last week. In the mid-1990s, I accidentally discovered how to wipe out a certain kind of traffic jam. Baby's theory says that traffic moves in waves caused by drivers who follow each other too close. He says it came to him about 20 years ago. I was bored, and this was on 520 going west towards the bridges, where there's always a whole bunch of stop-and-go driving. And I was trying to avoid hitting the brakes by driving at the average speed. So drive slow so a big open spot opens up. And then um, just before I arrive at the stopped wave of cars, they all take off. And if I got it just right, I'd never have to hit the brakes at all. Instead of hitting the gas to keep up with a car in front of him, Beatty says he drove a steady 35 or 40 miles an hour. So if you had just um, one driver per lane and then like, I don't know, every 10 minutes someone did this, the stop and go would be gone. In a video on his website, trafficwaves.org, Beatty says it also works when you're lined up at an exit trying to get off the highway. The jam is often kept alive by a solid row of cars in the through lane who won't let anybody in. They pack themselves together. But if I let them in early, they'll merge ahead of me. And then they're not racing down to the end to get in line and do the big fight. And then there's no reason for the traffic jam. It's a nice theory, but it clashes with a few things in reality. Mark Hallenbeck is a real-life traffic engineer at the University of Washington. If you have enough space between you and the people in front of you, you can diminish the impact of that shockwave. That is absolutely true. The problem is, while you're doing that, four other people do other things in that level of density, which recreate that shockwave. And cause the roadway to fail. But in three separate studies, Chinese researchers found what they call jam absorption driving actually does work. A Japanese study found much the same, although all of them agree this only works some of the time. Still, Beatty says this sort of driving doesn't just suppress traffic jams. He says it also frees his mind. It's completely calm existence. Now I'm, I'm the philosopher that's helping everybody around me rather than the competitor that's screwing everybody and backstabbing right and left to get a couple of car lengths ahead. It's a totally different life as a commuter when you do it that way. Maybe that's the real benefit of all this. Hey, Charlie, uh, you oh, like you? the Seahawks, yes? I am You watch a, from a time 12. to time? Yeah. Watch every week. I've never watched a Seahawks game with you. Right. We watched the Super Bowl once. Once. But it wasn't with the Seahawks. They were not playing. Well, yeah, I, I also remember a time where they, they gave a certain... Oh, distinction. Franchise tag, if you yes. will, to their kicker, Josh Brown. Number three. Yeah. You, in fact, 
had his jersey. I proudly wore it around the station. I made this find at Goodwill about a year ago where a Josh Brown jersey was for sale for $5. Yeah, it's a good find. You don't find jerseys, particularly with the number three, you don't find jerseys running for 5 bucks. So I snapped that thing up and I wore it proudly. It and was kind of cool. You know, you were wearing the three, cool. but it was the it was old design before Russell Wilson was there. Yeah. Bad news this week. Josh Brown now plays for the New York Giants. He left Seattle in 2008, but he and his now ex-wife, Molly, kept a home here. It was May of last year. She called 911, saying Josh had threatened to kill her four or five times. I just went and locked myself in my bedroom again. They came last night, and they said if anything else happened, just to call back, and I just... I'm I don't want anything to get any worse. The King County prosecutor declined to file charges, citing in part a lack of cooperation from the victim. And the NFL said there was not enough information about what happened either. Despite the recent tough-on-domestic violence stance the league took, they gave Brown just a one-game suspension. Sportsnet New York got the new details from the King County Sheriff's Office, and even before getting those documents, SNY's Ralph Vacchiano said the league had enough to come down on Brown. You knew about the 911 call they had seen in the police report. None of the details that came out with this were foreign to them. The new details include journal entries where Brown wrote that he's been abusing women since the age of seven. He wrote, I objectified women and never worried about the pain I caused. He wrote he had become a sexual deviant, viewing sex as a sport. The evidence also includes several of Brown's teammates apparently knowing about the couple's violent relationship. Carlene Johnson, Como News. Listen, I had a chance... I want you to listen to this real quick. Okay. I had a chance to talk to Sheriff John Urquhart. You have the NFL saying, hey, we didn't know. Mm-hmm. Urquhart was having none of it. This is my the raw conversation I had with him on Thursday. The NFL kind of sent out this uh, snarky tweet uh, about the sheriff's office. What, what do you have to say about that? Well, I guess snarky is one way to look at it, but uh, I'll be charitable and I'll say that the NFL is misinformed. So you had an ongoing investigation, and I, I, you, the standard line to me and the media or anyone else is, we can't share that with you until we have more uh, solid information to share with you. Well, yeah, that's, that's sort of what we say. What we really say is we do not provide open investigations. In other words, current cases that we are investigating, we do not provide those to the media, to employers, to the NFL, to the NBA, to the to uh, major, base, major League Baseball, we don't provide them to anybody if it's an open investigation because it can affect the integrity of that investigation. So uh, the, not only were they not, was the investigation not provided to the NFL until the investigation was complete at no time. At no time did the NFL ever ask us for that investigation in writing. It never happened. So uh, that's a pretty strong pushback. Uh, if they were to uh, call now, is there any information you're able to provide? Oh, yeah. We've provided the entire case file to everybody and their brother that's asked for it now that the case is closed. Everybody from the New York Post to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, but uh, and, and I'm assuming we've sent it to the NFL. But again, they never asked for it in writing beforehand. They did have someone that purported to be one of their investigators call, make a telephone call, the investigating detective in the middle of the case, and she told them the same thing. This is an open investigation. Once it's closed, you can have it. In the meantime, you cannot have copies of the case, nor will I discuss it with you. That's just standard procedure. Every police department in the country does that. John, I've I've talked to you a bunch of times. Uh, You sound sound ticked off about this. 
Oh, I am a bit ticked off about it because NFL is trying to skew the story to their favor. And first of all, they don't need to do that. All they need to do is tell the truth. They gave this guy a one-day suspension based on the information that they had at the time, not knowing that there was other information out there. That's all they need to say. But they blamed us for not having the rest of that information when that is not only not true, but it's just not fair. Urquhart shoots from the hip, in a manner of speaking. This weekend, mm-hmm. Bill Murray getting that big Mark Twain prize in Washington, D.C. Do you think he's going to dress up like Mark Twain? I hope so. Yes, too. I hope so. Tina Fey did. Some of your favorite Bill Murray movies. Go. Oh, boy. Stripes was great. Yeah. Uh, I've always been big a fan toe. of, of uh, Steve Zissou. Oh, uh, Life, Aquatic. Life Aquatic. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's he's a big one there for me. Uh, Ghostbusters. I mean, he's in so many classics. Yeah. I, I got to have Caddyshack on mm-hmm. that Groundhog list. translation. It's hard to interview Bill Murray. Uh, nary impossible. <laughs> it is. He doesn't like doing publicity. Bill likes doing his own thing. Mm-hmm. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. The way reporter Jeff Edger saw it, the assignment from his editors at the Washington Post was straightforward enough. Do a nice story on Bill Murray. Basically, the piece was a profile of him in advance of him receiving this prestigious you know, Mark Twain prize, and then, for a variety of reasons, he decided not to talk with me, which I couldn't figure out. Da, 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 da. You know how there's that cliche of a guy who plays by his own rules, but that's all really Hollywood puffery? As Jeff found out, that's truly how Murray operates. Thank you very much. I always open with a little something by a guy named Richard Strauss called 2001. Bill Murray operates in a way that nobody else operates. He has no agent. He has no manager. He has no publicist. He has this supposed 800 number on which, if you can acquire it somehow, you're supposed to leave messages. And then if everything works out, he gets a message or he doesn't delete it or he gets it, whatever. And then he will say to his his lawyer, hey, get this guy to send me a script to some place. So that's how it works. It's unlike anybody else. So what's a reporter to do? It's not like he wasn't trying. And so uh, it was really, a, you know, with Bill Murray, I started doing interviews of people around him. You know, uh, I talked to David Letterman. I talked to Howard Stern. Those guys aren't exactly easy to get to, but I got them. To paraphrase that web video where we learned Honey Badger doesn't give a darn, Bill Murray doesn't give a darn. And eventually it was like his brother, his youngest brother, Joel, who had had trouble reaching him, who I talked to, and he said, it's not you, it's him. Like, stop blaming yourself. And I realized he's right. Like, I didn't do anything. What, what did Joel compare him to? Like a terrorist. He said he just doesn't care if he's captured, I think. So finally, the deadline comes. It's Wednesday. The Washington Post needs to print out the papers. Jeff's story, a Bill Murray profile without Bill Murray, is published. I was just sitting there two hours after my story published, and it was in a prominent location right on the homepage of the Washington Post, um, and I was about to go for a run. It was a beautiful day. thought I'd go out for a little run, and my cell phone rings, and I look, and it's a number that I didn't recognize, so I pick it up, and uh, it's Bill Murray. I mean, he was just on the phone, you know? Turns out, Bill Murray hadn't read the article. He was eating from a box of chocolates in a taxi cab, and he and I started talking, and we found ourselves talking about music and, and the process of writing and the Cubs. I got to tell you, based on 
everything that is going on in this crazy, mixed-up world reading this article. It's a nice, pleasant distraction. You're right. I mean, it just cheered me up somehow. And I, I sat there and I wrote a story about him calling me in about 45 minutes after spending months on this other story. And it just felt good to put it out there. I mean, I'm, I'm just glad he called. Murray receives that Mark Twain Award Sunday, and you can read both of Jeff Edger's Bill Murray stories in the Washington Post. Charlie Harder, Como News. We spoke with him just hours before Bill Murray decided to walk in front of the press corps at the White House <laughs> in a Cubs jersey. <laughs> he, this poor guy, Jeff Edgers, he's a Washington Post reporter. Immediately after this airs on Como Radio, Bill Murray... Jeff, you know, he's complaining about... Well, he's not complaining. <laughs> it's just this delightful story about not being able to get Bill Murray for an interview. Yeah, he's a tough guy to get. And then All the entire sudden, White House press corps gets... He just strolls out. <laughs> Wait a second. That's not the president's <laughs> spokesman. That's Bill Murray. Oh. So uh, Jeff must be feeling kind of funny that way. Charlie, you familiar with the with cell phone ringtones? Familiar with the technology, mm-hmm. yes. The, uh, the, you know, the beeps and the, and the mm-hmm. boops and, mm-hmm. and all that. The musician perhaps most closely identified with the 80s synth pop, he's kind of responsible for for some of the more popular ringtones we've seen. And he got invited to speak to the tech heads at Microsoft this week. Como's Corwin Hake blinds us with sound. Oh! He's the man who dazzled a national audience on the new network MTV with a 1982 song and video that employed synthesizers in a much more playful way than audiences had heard up to then. Science! She Blinded Me With Science was a top five hit for Thomas Dolby, no relation to Dolby Labs of noise reduction fame. This Dolby was a musician who fit no previous rock star mold. I emerged in an era when the the top pin-up front men were people like Simon Le Bon and Adam Ant and Sting and so on. And I was never going to compete in those stakes. So I thought, well, I've got to go back to my roots. And my father and his father and his father before him were all Oxbridge professors. And um, so I, I drew on the academic side of my, uh, of my background. And <clears throat> when I wrote the storyboard for She Blinded Me With Science, I thought, well, if I'm going to be a scientist geek, <clears throat> I'm going to be a cool geek and have a hot Japanese lab assistant and a great vintage motorcycle with sidecar. Dolby was 21 when science hit the charts. The sudden success came after years of tinkering with music machinery. I found my first synthesizer actually in a dumpster and I took it back to my bedsit and soldered it back together and uh, that was the first sounds that I used to make. Most of the sounds he made were quite unlike the science single. His first two albums are filled with atmospheric, sometimes wistful sounds. Later music was more dance-oriented. But toward the end of the 90s, Dolby took a right turn into high-tech. He founded a dot-com called Beatnik that convinced websites to include a musical element online. Later, on the verge of failure, the company began creating music for Nokia mobile devices. They started embedding the Beatnik synthesizer in their phones to do the sound, including the ringtones. And I had a team of people programming their ringtones, including the, the infamous Nokia tone. And uh, since then, they've shipped hundreds of millions of them. And at one point in the 2000s, Beatnik was in two-thirds of all the world's new mobile phones. Changing forever the way cell phones sound. 
Microsoft, of course, acquired Nokia a couple years back. Now Dolby is visiting Microsoft's Redmond campus. The company invited him to read from his new memoir, The Speed of Sound. The invitation came somewhat to his surprise. Because I'm, I'm actually, in my, if you read my book, I'm not that polite about Microsoft and, and their two founders. Uh, so when they invited me, I said, have you actually read the book? And they said, well, you know, the Microsoft of today is very different from the one you would have known in the, in the 90s. And, and, you know, they're right. It is different. These days, Dolby's back to his Oxbridge roots in a way. He now lives in Baltimore. You know, I'm teaching film scoring at Johns Hopkins. Professor Dolby, a fitting occupation for the mad scientist of music and technology. Corwin Hake, Como News. Science, Charlie. Science. Science. So, listener, a big interview today. And... Taylor, you were supposed to be part of this interview. I don't want to get all technical and behind the scenes. You know whose fault it is? It's mine. No, it's Nancy Barrick's fault. It's Nancy Barrick. Okay. I wasn't going to blame Nancy, but I, I think we could all agree. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Nancy's fault. No, no. Just in terms of being able to patch you through, you were busy doing a million things. We had Navi Jamali coming. Who's normally our secret agent guy. He is normally our secret agent. We found a better one. A double secret agent. Yeah. And his name is Malcolm Nance. Mm -hmm. So Naveed came in. He knows Malcolm Nance. And Malcolm Nance, we'll talk about it in a moment, but he's got a book out talking about Russian hacking of the election system. Uh, Malcolm's like a naval intelligence officer, real bright dude. And he spoke to us for like half an hour. So I figured we'd bring you that raw interview. And you'll hear Naveed toward the end, but what you won't hear is Taylor. Yeah, so this is going to be the first time I get to hear a really good interview that I was supposed to be a part of and could have taken credit for. Malcolm Nance is the author of The Plot to Hack America, How Putin's Cyber Spies and WikiLeaks Tried to Steal the 2016 Election. First thing I had to ask him was about the latest batch of WikiLeaks. Well, the only thing that the leaks from WikiLeaks tell us is that someone has actually committed a cyber crime. And as a matter of fact, the only thing that's extraordinary here is the fact that WikiLeaks is acting as a conduit for Russian intelligence and taking these stolen emails of individual American citizens, surely related to a campaign, and showing us the Hillary Clinton organization is nothing but a political machine that actually weighs out, thinks through, and evaluates political processes. Other than the fact that they actually hacked into them, passed this material onto WikiLeaks, and the they is Russian intelligence, the FSB, also known as the KGB, uh, and passed them on to WikiLeaks, for release before the election is not a that's out of the ordinary the material that inside them are actually mundane rather dull the russian level of involvement in this a you say is extraordinary this is the russians doing this why is that such a concern well it should be a concern for everyone in the united states because never before in the history of the united states have we had a foreign nation not just try to influence an election, but deliberately attack the United States using systems right now, cyber weapon systems, which is what we refer to them as. I mean, cyber tools and hacking tools and all of these things are essentially like cruise missile attacks. But the intent of the intelligence agency that uses them, in this case, the FSB slash KGB, is to damage the United States by, for the first time, and 240 years, making a choice as to who would be president of the United States. It's unprecedented, and uh, that's why the president took it with extreme seriousness last week. 
uh, by making his announcement that there will be retaliation. This book came out very quickly once the extent of the WikiLeaks uh, debacle uh, really became evident. Uh, you must have worked really quickly and, and very hard oh. on this. Well, as I said, the uh, this book actually started uh, last March mm -hmm. when I started a, uh, a, a follow-on book to Defeating ISIS, yeah. which was uh, called um, Hacking ISIS. And it was a full, very in-depth analysis of... ISIS is cyber warfare organization, it's, it's hackers, it's propaganda, how they do global distribution. Um, and so I had already collected years of that information. But when we found that in the middle of, of doing this, we found uh, that there were two hackings of major news organizations which were attributed to ISIS's cyber caliphate army. Mm -hmm. and. The security companies, the cybersecurity companies around the world took a close look at it and found that the tools used in those two hackings were extremely sophisticated. They were nothing uh, like anything ISIS had ever even dreamed of. I mean, you know, it would be like somebody saying they're the Irish Republican Army, but they have all the cyber tools of the National Security Agency. So, so something you know, else. Yeah. Yeah. So. Those were actually attributed by both German intelligence, French and U.S. intelligence as false flag operations by Russian intelligence. But using, oh, you know, okay. the cyber caliphate army's um, logo, typing in Arabic that came out. I mean, as I read it, it was horrible Arabic. Then when it was put back through Google Translate, it, it would come out to perfect Russian. So, <laughs> Conveniently enough. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like wait a minute. So someone who was typing in Cyrillic was getting this Arabic translation. So, yeah. it, it, so it was pretty clear. And of course, the NSA and and other organizations like G DGSE, French intelligence, tracked it back to one of the two hacking organizations, ATP Twenty Eight, Advanced Persistent Threat Twenty Eight, which is Russian military intelligence, the GRU. Should he win the election, Donald Trump says, uh, apparently he's willing to meet with Putin even before taking office. What do you make of that? Well, as I wrote in my book, The Plot to Hack America, uh, which is really an intelligence analysis of, of Putin, Russian intelligence agencies, and how they've co-opted Donald Trump and have turned him into, uh, as we say in the intelligence community, unwitting asset. He's not actually an agent. An agent is someone who works for another nation and knows it. An unwitting asset is someone who has been co-opted through intelligence processes, uh, technically recruited, but they don't even know they've been recruited. Donald Trump espouses all the strategic policies of Russia and none of the strategic policies of the United States that have been the cornerstone to security in the West since World War II. And I apologize for making these questions sound like I'm incredibly dense. Just uh, forgive me, but why isn't it a good idea to have stronger relations with Russia? Oh, it's, it's an excellent idea to have stronger relations with Russia. The United States had relatively good relationships with Russia uh, in the post-Soviet era. That's between, you know, 1991 and uh, about 2001. But what changed in that period? was that besides the fact that Russia became extremely rich and sold off all of its Soviet assets and created an oligarchy that is essentially a, a mafia-run country with atomic bombs, 
Uh, the United States had Russia at that point was involved quite deeply in the Partnership for Peace, which was a NATO uh, organization, and uh, there was a lot of cooperation. When Vladimir Putin became the president of Russia, uh, and certainly between 2001 and 2012, he was grooming the country for him to become an oligarch. And in 2012, uh, or I'm sorry, not an oligarch, but an autocrat. And in 2012, when he took power again, he became a very serious autocrat. He decided that Russia was going to take uh, a role in the world using an imperial model and started opposing everything that the West did and positioned himself to be one of the two preeminent superpowers. But right now they're not. They're economically damaged. Uh, some of their gross domestic income uh, is about equal to that of India. They have a, a gross national product on par with Italy. Uh, so all they have is weapons and force. And Vladimir Putin understands uh, showing force. This way is why I think it's so great to have you on. Your expertise in all these issues, because there are these reports that in Syria right now, the anti-missile, anti-aircraft shield has been established by uh, the Russian military, uh, which is weird because ISIS, as far as we know, doesn't have jets or missiles. So what do you make of that? All of Russia's moves in Syria are, are a sign of Russia wanting to as, as I said earlier, project power, project the position of strength. In fact, Russia is quite weak on the global stage. But by straddling the, the sword and taking a hardline position in Syria to save their last remaining client in the Middle East, uh, they have no problem cooperating with Syria to commit essentially mass murder of all the people in the opposition. Uh, as a matter of fact, Russia today and the tactics that Assad has adopted are being changed by Russia into the exact same tactics that were used by Russia uh, against Chechnya. They are planning to level and kill everyone in the city of Aleppo, for example. The surface-to-air missile systems that are put there are supposed to be defensive systems to show everyone in the region that Russia uh, takes its uh, defense seriously. Uh, they are not against ISIS. They're really for the Israelis and the United States. However, Russia may miscalculate on that point because the United States may take, uh, you know, may, may, may understand that they are not going to violate uh, Russian air defense. They are not going to go in there and attack Russian systems. But, you know, I've worked in the Middle East almost 35 years. And if there's anything I know, if the Israelis think that those surface-to-air missile systems are a threat, they will cease to exist. So for the most part, Russia is coming into a neighborhood they have no understanding of. Mosul, by all accounts, is about to fall with, uh, what, almost 80 to 100,000 Iraqi military members uh, standing by to retake the city. Uh, presumably, whatever remains of those ISIS fighters go back across the border to Syria. And, you know, if you have um, Russian defenses set up where NATO allies can't necessarily go after those ISIS fighters, if you're thinking a couple steps ahead, this becomes incredibly complicated as there's an attempt to wipe out ISIS entirely. Well, Russian air defense systems and Russian air force activities are no deterrent to the United States from striking ISIS in eastern Syria. We've been carrying that out for two years uh, relentlessly. Almost every day, uh, ISIS, if in fact they, some forces survive, coming out of Mosul will have a very long road to, that they will have to drive and try to move out of 
and 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 in the face of U.S. Iraqi air power and Turkish air power, as a matter of fact, I don't think anyone is going to survive the Battle of Mosul. We are not giving them an exit. At most, they will be able to split and fall back to Tel Afar in the west, and then Mosul there, and this is their Okinawa moment. They will all die in the city of Mosul. The forces that already exist in western, in eastern Syria and western Iraq, they will consolidate, but ISIS is surrounded. They have nowhere to go. We have uh, U.S. special forces with uh, Apache attack helicopters. Certainly that minimizes any of these uh, remaining uh, militants, their chances of escaping and, and making it across the border. Well, that's absolutely right. And, it, and it's not just the Apache attack helicopters. The Iraqi Air Force has their own resources from F-16s to, uh, you know, to, uh, to attack transports and attack helicopters. You know, the one thing that ISIS has done is they've managed to bring the, you know, the one, the one thing that no one thought was possible in the Middle East, which is to bring together every disparate ethnic and religious group in Iraq and Syria and create a coalition of hatred against them. And that is what is going to doom ISIS. U.S. Special Forces, we're just providing the air power. Uh, as a matter of fact, you can probably see in the media, uh, whenever we hit a hard spot there, we bring in, you know, U.S., French, German artillery and, uh, and the coalition air power, and we just knock it down. So like I said, ISIS can get into convoys, but uh, there's not going to be any surviving for them in this game. And Malcolm, should ISIS lose all or most of its territories, what does that do for their claim of having a caliphate? Well, the physical caliphate will disappear. As a matter of fact, ISIS is not just losing in Iraq and Syria. And, you know, if you listen to Donald Trump, uh, well, first off, you will be dumber by the, the event. Uh, but the war and the battle against ISIS is coming into its last stages. We are defeating them physically in Iraq and Syria. We have defeated them with the assistance of U.S. Uh, Africa Command. Uh, ISIS in Libya is now gone. It was defeated over three days ago. Uh, U.S. and uh, French and British forces carried out over 130, I believe, 130 airstrikes in support of the Libyan national government and uh, the Libyan Dawn forces. They're gone. The Egyptians are, are really damaging. I mean, uh, almost to the point of extinction. ISIS in the Sinai Peninsula, ISIS in Afghanistan. The Taliban are telling the United States where ISIS in Afghanistan are. So the Afghan National Army has had great success in damaging them. This caliphate is going to go underground. They are going to become what I call a ghost caliphate in about a year, which means the Internet will be the only place they will be able to meet and coordinate. All of the hardcore members who are in Iraq and Syria, those thousands upon thousands of foreign fighters, they will cease to exist next year. I'm just wrapping up reading uh, Lawrence mm -hmm. Wright's Terror Years right now. And, oh, yeah. Oh, uh, he's a great guy. Yeah. So I, I guess my question is, where is al-Qaeda in all of this? The beauty of al-Qaeda is that they have always been an intelligence agency-styled organization, true terrorist organization, always covert, never their head above the sand, never taking large areas of terrain. Bin Laden never wanted to have mass military attacks because he knew that by doing that, you would bring upon heavy military forces and they would defeat you. So Al-Qaeda is maintaining its organizational base. They are trying to uh, carry out operations mainly in, the, in the, the African Sahel. That's just below the Sahara Desert. 
uh, and and just above uh, you know the, uh, the, uh, the 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 jungle regions uh, of of Central Africa and in Somalia. For the most part, Al Qaeda main is uh, I'm uh, Dr. Ayman Zawahiri is still living in a cave somewhere up in uh, you know uh, western uh, Pakistan, and uh, Al Qaeda in yet uh, the Arabian Peninsula still has some forces in Yemen, but now they're up against Saudi and United Arab Emirates and Gulf state forces there. So they have no senior leadership who is providing the inspiration for strategic attacks the way ISIS has. But as you see, ISIS is, uh, that did not help ISIS, is in fact, that has brought the whole world down on top of them. And uh, their experiment is, is, is going to end, but Al-Qaeda will still exist. So... I- What's next? Are, are there big bads on the horizon? You know, surely that's good news that uh, ISIS may cease to be the eminent threat it once was. But uh, what do you see on the horizon? Well, it's like I said, I, ISIS uh, is going to devolve into uh, what Al Qaeda is today. But there will be so few remaining people who have any corporate knowledge to pass on other than what's on the internet and that means isis will devolve into a ghost caliphate where the what the ideology will remain because it's all over the internet people who will want to carry out an act will be inspired to carry out their own act so the future is more orlando's more san bernardino's many many uh much much less uh types of situations as you saw in paris uh and nice It'll be self-inspired people. But as the ideology fails, people will be less inspired to take up arms in their name. You're Malcolm Nance. Malcolm, Naveed has a couple questions for you as well. Sure. Hey, Malcolm. So you've been in the intelligence business for going on 35 years. Um, you've seen it you know, go, go from analog to digital. You know, Today's intelligence <laughs> community has changed quite a bit. What do you, what do you sort of see as the sort of the leading, you know, pervasive threat or challenge the intelligence community uh, faces? You know, during the Iraq war, we became extremely proficient. I think far more proficient than people would, 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 would give allowance to in human intelligence and, and, and theater level, uh, you know, signals intelligence that brought strategic communications down to a tactical level to where your cell phone, was no longer, you know, uh, a, a, a net positive to you. Uh, we became very, very good at that. And by the time we left Iraq in 2011, we were just decimating terrorist cells. So when we get into an area and we really put our concentration into it, we're very good at that. The new world, of course, is cyber. Cyber warfare is not just hacking. It's, it's everything that is inside the electronic realm. And if you want to think of it, it's everything that has that has any ability to communicate with itself from your refrigerator. If you have one of those plussed up refrigerators or if you have uh, one of those smart televisions, every one of those things can not just be hacked. They can be uh, they, they're easier to intercept. They are they can be used as tools to where we can actually turn them on, use them as surveillance and listening devices. But you won't have that malicious type of operation coming from the United States. Uh, you know, I, I constantly argue these things when I pe- hear people say, oh, what about Edward Snowden? What about surveillance? I worked at the National Security Agency. I'm an advocate of the National Security Agency. I can tell you one thing. 
everything comes down to a human being. We will not waste our time on an American citizen. Uh, you know, we don't have time for that. We have more than enough extremely bad people in this world that the good work that the people are doing at the, at the National Security Agency have to, you know, go out and concentrate on. There are many, many bad people in this world who need to be destroyed. On the other hand, uh, we have new realms of not just cyberspace, but by extension, space itself. All of our strategic opponents, China, Russia, are harnessing both cyberspace as an integral component of physical warfare, political warfare, and propaganda warfare. And Russia calls that hybrid warfare, you know, where they will actually destabilize your nation by funding a right-wing organization. And unlike the old days, where you had to bring in a suitcase of, you know, two or three million dollars in cash, that can be put out in bitcoins, it can be transferred wirelessly, they can buy gift cards from Target in large stacks and, and give it to people, and money is harder to trace. Then again, the entire propaganda organ of Russia, like TV shows like Russia Today and their Sputnik channel, uh, which are the same thing as the old days of Pravda and Izvestia, they will organize campaigns to destabilize you in the information domain. So, you know, we've seen that here in this election. They have, they Vladimir Putin determined Donald Trump was going to be his candidate. There are actually troll tanks, that is, you know, warehouses of people who are paid by the hundreds to monitor U.S. Inter internet traffic, you know, on liberal websites and to put out negative troll commentary. And they are in St. Petersburg. They are in Moscow. They are in Novosibirsk. Uh, the New York Times did a big expose on those. And if you see some of their Twitter feeds, they'll have one or two tweets, but they'll just have be bots that put out the same message, Trump for America. This is a component of that hybrid warfare. And the United States, we're very slow to pick up on that because we don't do operations like that. Uh, Russia has made this a key component of how they do uh, all of their business today. Same with China. China steals information because it's there and they can't. So you and I are both uh, heavily involved in the uh, Spy Museum in D.C. You're on the uh, board of directors there. Um, yes. You know, when you think about cyber and WikiLeaks and all this sort of modern technology, I mean, you and I have discussed this a lot, the, you know, the, the traditional part of espionage is tradecraft and, and human assets. How, how do you see in the modern intelligence world the two of those components functioning together, or, or do you? Well, they, 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 they function together rather well. Uh, you know, technology being what it is, is, is required to have a human interface. I mean, it just doesn't exist for the pleasure of existing. You know, the, these are things like a, a laptop computer, a flash memory module, a, uh, you know, uh, an SD drive, uh, a, a small drone, you know, with a camera on it. And it, like I said a little earlier, you know, everything comes down to a human. Computers aren't automated yet. We don't have the rise of the machines uh, in enough to where we don't have to have human intervention. Uh, you know, we're not going to allow machines to analyze intelligence, for example. All they can do is point out trends. Everything comes down to a human being. That being said, everything that comes down to a human being can be manipulated or in the traditional methods of human intelligence. Uh, but we can use technology as an extension of that. Um, a good example of that is in Russia. 
for example, back in the 19th, you know, as far back as the 15th century, they would, you know, break the wax seals on 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 letters or they would steam open your envelopes. Well, that's done today also. I mean, you know, the National Security Agency and the, the Russia's Special Communications Information Service, Russia's NSA, you know, they have the ability and WikiLeaks is a good example of that to go in, get your mail of any targeted individual on your mobile phone, in your life, and take that information and exploit it. Uh, and like I said, the United States doesn't do that on a minute-to-minute basis the way Russia does. Russia does it for, you know, just because the sun comes up. So, you know, we have to have a warrant. <laughs> you know, you have to be a target. So human intelligence is always going to be a factor there because sometimes you may need to infect uh, a system with, you know, with a virus or with a Trojan uh, and they may have a gap between, you know, uh, a, a secure, you know, internal network as opposed to the surface Internet. And you may have to have a, an agent or an asset go in there and introduce that to them. Uh, so there will always be a need for all of the traditional intelligence services. As a matter of fact, technology makes human much, much more uh, interesting, certainly than when I started out. I started out uh, working for the National Security Agency, but I, I was brought into the human world. Um, and so that being said, we're always going to need human, mass and SIGINT, imagery, intelligence, all of those things. So this is my last question for you, and I'm going to enjoy mm -hmm. this because it's one that everyone always asks me. You know, the last time we spoke, you were off buying a burner phone, and uh, you know, your your uh, your your career has spanned. I mean, you've been a sailor uh, on a on a cruiser, I think it was, that was shot oh. at by the Iranians, and uh, yeah, you've written in a about missile battle. you've right, you've written about ISIS. You've now written a book that points the finger at Russia. Are you scared? Oh, I'm never <laughs> I'm never scared. You know, I'm I'm concerned. This is the way my my wife puts it. I mean, my first tour of duty, I was there for the Beirut bombing. You know, 243 Americans killed. So that being said, um, y you know, I just have interesting times happen in my career. Let's just put it that way. Uh, a lot of, uh, of of things happen. However, in this modern world, certainly during this election, my number one concern, the thing that really keeps me up at night is not somebody coming out, you know, and, you know, and going to a mall and shooting people. It's the fact that for the, again, the first time in American history, we have had a hostile intelligence agency at the direction of a KGB director who now runs a mafia with nuclear weapons, actually an engineer, the election of a president who is uh, of a candidate who does not seem to understand American values or what the national defense of the United States, Europe, and Eastern Europe is about. So it's like Trevor Noah, The Daily Show, said, you know, Putin managed to get a guy to run as the, you know, you know, the Manchurian candidate to run on the platform of the Manchurian candidate. <laughs> you know, it's, it's utterly amazing. And, you know, the conservatives are so bent up on doing damage to Barack Obama, that they would actually go along with the platform of a potential asset, uh, definitely an asset, but potentially an agent of Russia. And we won't know that, certainly until after the elections, when counterintelligence investigations will start to expand. And they've, they've already started uh, with Carter Page, uh, the uh, Trump advisor who 
it appears uh, our intelligence allies say went to Russia in July and promised to raise all sanctions against them if Donald Trump becomes president. At that point, the spy catchers that I know would all be just waiting for the warrant to come to do start their secret investigations to determine if these people are actual paid agents of Russia. Well, thank you, Malcolm. Uh, that was half an hour, and I think we could, probably could have Hold done it, a I got one more, more question yeah. you haven't asked. Okay, let me you ask away. What it is? <laughs> the, question, the question you haven't asked that will make you all run to the bathroom? Yes, please. What's going to happen on election day? What's, hold on one second here. Uh, Naveed? <laughs> I don't know, Charlie. You think this this is a good? Idea? I think it might be a good question. What's going to happen on election day, Malcolm? Well, it's more to the point. What do I hope does not happen on election day? Right now, we have seen Russia just essentially carry out Watergate and get away with it successfully, and manage to manipulate. Uh, an entire election through the selective release of information through their laundromat, that is Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. Now, another component of this, which Russia has done before, is that they have hacked elections. And I just want you to imagine for a moment, certainly based on the comments made by Donald Trump, that uh, if this election has any shenanigans, he will declare it, you know, uh, invalid. But just imagine for one moment that a state like Pennsylvania, which he already said he expects fraudulent elections uh, to occur, even though he's 11 points behind in Pennsylvania. Just imagine on Election Day, the voter tally at the state level. No one's going to hack the machines. The easiest place to hack is the state uh, elections tally. Imagine for five minutes, one million votes move from one column to the next in a very obvious hacking, and then back to the correct tally. Five minutes, this country could descend to the point of where, uh, for the first time, 40% um, of the population may decide that this election's invalid, they want it redone, and if it's not done, we may be facing civil unrest or civil war. And it doesn't sound like you're discounting that at all. No, it's it's quite possible. Right. It's quite possible uh, that uh, we, we go to the point where people will go to guns. Well, on that happy note. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Moscow. <laughs> all right. Listen, that is all the time we have for the podcast this week. Hey, coming up next week on mm. the show, we will not have exclusive interviews with Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump. We might get Jill Stein. Yeah, we got Gary Johnson not long ago. You never I mean, know. In, in the building, he actually but definitely came not Clinton or Trump. Yeah, no, they don't not like us enough. Us. No, we're we're hated bipartisanally. Is that a word? It has to be now. It's on a podcast. <laughs>